I had a good conversation with um, a couple of the brothers about this language of light. I, am, I have come as light into the world. If you are familiar with the Gospel of John, you know well that Jesus said things like, I am the light of the world. John identifies him as light, capital L, in John chapter 1. John the Baptist was a witness to the light. He was a lamp shining brightly, but he was a lamp. He wasn't the light, but he was a witness to the light. And then the light is called he or him, that is Christ himself. So sometimes, I think more times than not, what light refers to is probably he is the torchbearer of revelation as promised in the Old Testament. Remember in Acts chapter 26, uh, Paul is testifying before a civil magistrate and he says, I've proclaimed nothing other than what Moses and the prophet said would take place that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory and then proclaim light both to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Now that is an echo of, I think it's Isaiah 49, it's Isaiah something or other. This light bearer, this torch bearer of revelation would speak light, revelation to others. Jesus means that when he says, for instance, I am the light of the world. But this light text is different. I am come as light. Now, I leaned on 1 John 1.5 pretty heavily this morning. God is light. And the reason why I leaned on that is because I think it's apostolic uh, remembrance of what Jesus taught in John chapter 12. And you heard when I read the quote, I think it was by... Gill. Gill made that connection as well, and he could have been the one that helped me see the connection. I'm not sure. But this proclamation in John 12, 46, that we considered in the first hour, this is different than just, I am the Messiah promised in the Old Testament who bears light, who sheds light, who, who illumines people, who brings truth. Though that is true, What he's getting at in John 12, 46 is, I am the God who is light, having come to the earth. Sent by the Father, but he could also say, uh, I have come, or I think the King James says, I am come as light into the world. So our first consideration was just what does that mean, that he is light, God is light. And I read a, a long quote by John Gill. So we won't contemplate that. But I do have two other contemplations or considerations. And the first one is this. Consider that this understanding of John 12, 46, that Jesus is proclaiming himself as the one and only God who is light, this understanding of John 12, 46 made it into the Nicene Creed. Have you ever thought of that? God from God, light from light. That's in the Nicene Creed. In other words, 
We could say this, Christians have confessed our Lord as the God who is light for a real long time. Okay? We believe, the Nicene Creed says, in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. He is Son of the Father by nature, not by grace or adoption like us who was begotten of the Father before all ages, so there is this eternal relation between Father and Son before time, before creation. Here it is, God from God. Um, By the way, that should enrich our understanding of the sent language of the New Testament. The Father has sent the Son God, the Son, from God, the Father. The temporal mission of the Son actually reflects an eternal relation between the Father and the Son. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who was begotten of the Father before all ages, God from God, Light from light, true God from true God. Where do they get the true God from? True or only. Remember when Jesus says, he calls his father the only or the true God in his prayer in John 17 and I think elsewhere. But then listen to 1 John 1 John 5, 1 John chapter 5, listen what else happens by the apostle in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come, God from God, and has given us an understanding, light, that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So, true God from true God. What do you think the this refers back to? Grammatically, if you, we all knew Greek, we could see it. It refers back to the nearest thing it can refer back to. And what is that? Who is that? Jesus Christ. This is the true God. Who first used the language of true God? Jesus did in reference to his Father. So why do you think the, 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 the Nicene Creed says, True God from true God, because the Son identifies the Father as the true God, and here the Apostle identifies the Son as the true God. And one person sends the other person. So that's why we could say true God from true God. So this language, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, is actually grounded where? Where is its basis? Or where does the impetus for this kind of language come from? Scripture itself. 
which is pretty interesting. So my consideration is this. My interpretation of John 12, 46 is neither novel. Uh, it's not novel, excuse me. It's very antiquitous. What is new is not true, right? So since it's an old view, it must be right. No, but I think in this case, it's antiquity uh, doesn't make it right, right? Just because, a, or a, well, I didn't say his name, but I did quote the A guy this morning. Just because Augustine or just because Cyril held the view doesn't make it right, right? Is, does it correspond with what scripture teaches, does the view? And I think it does. It's a very old view, and it actually is it's a, very, it's a very universal view because universal in the sense of it's a very Christian view because the view that I preached from John 12, 46 is actually in this ecumenical creed. Sorry, but Roman Catholics, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, and all Protestants that are worth the name, can say we, we, we respect this creed. Okay, that's why it's called ecumenical, because it's very broad. The view that I preached made it into the creed. How wonderful I think that is. But also, the view that I preached made it into a hymn. O come, let us adore him. Remember that hymn? Remember that one line that you don't hear? Too often during Christmas time, it says, God of God, light of light, O come, let us adore him. That's hymn 151. Sometimes we don't think that the hymn writers are actually pretty good theologians, and they're borrowing language here in this hymn from the Nicene Creed, which all the Nicene Creed is is, is, is an attempt to put Scripture in slightly different words at times to, to beat down the heretics, basically. That's why they had to do the creeds. So if you're struggling with my interpretation of it, just know you've got a problem with the Nicene Creed, Augustine, Cyril, Aquinas, Gill, and I want to say God, but I, I won't go that far. Uh, so, our third and final consideration is this. Finally, consider the end for which our Lord came as light into the world. I've highlighted what I think the meaning of I have come as light. But we cannot, and I don't want to do this, so I'm not going to do this, neglect the purpose for which he came as light. That whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Uh, amen? Well, that's a, like a, I almost said hallelujah, but some of you would have gotten. Listen to John Gill once more. God's elect themselves, whilst in a state of unregeneracy and unbelief, are in darkness. All of us have been there. Some might still be there. Darkness. When Christ shines in upon them, some of us can remember, and infuses the light of faith into them, they are no longer in darkness. They see light. 
see the glory and grace of Christ and the invisible realities of another world. Nor do they continue in the darkness of sin, ignorance, and unbelief, but walk in the light of truth, faith, and holiness until the perfect day comes when all the shadows of remaining darkness will flee away. I loved that last line especially. When all the shadows of remaining darkness will flee away. It's, it's impossible, you know, to imagine living where there is no darkness, no sin, no guilt, no effects of sin, no frowning providences, only bliss and joy and felicity of soul, along with all other bodies and souls, created bodies and souls that are there, along with all the elect angels in the special manifestation, manifested presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever. You know, it's like, I can say those words. I can't say like, oh, let me give you an example of that. Last Tuesday for about 20 minutes, I lived that way. When all the shadows of remaining darkness will flee away. Why did the Son of God come as light, as God the Son become man? That whoever believes on him. So he must become man for a, to do something, right? So that everyone who believes on him should no longer abide in darkness. Which means everybody's abiding in darkness and you have to be rescued from the domain of darkness by a power way stronger than any creature. After the section in the Nicene Creed, by the way, that I previously read, we read these words. Who, that is our Lord, for us men and our salvation came down from heaven I have come as light. He came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary and became man, was crucified, suffered, buried, rose, ascended, sits at the right hand of the Father and shall come again in glory. It ends with these words. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. So it didn't stop, right? The Nicene Creed doesn't stop with God from God, light from light. It's, it's highlighting the divinity of our Lord. And then it says, and for us men and for our salvation, he came down. That's all over the Gospel of John. By the way, the hymn I quoted says this, God of God, light of light. And then watch what it does. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. So what's the hymn doing? Exactly what the creed was doing. Extolling, highlighting the divinity of our Lord, his pre-incarnate state. And then... His incarnate state, not, did, not throwing off divinity, but assume he became man for us and for our salvation. Lo, 
He abhors not the virgin's womb. Now, isn't that interesting? How could he abhor not the virgin's womb unless somehow, someway, he predates the thing in the womb? Right? If he's not abhorring it, if he's not against it, he must somehow exist prior to the thing in the womb, that holy thing. I say thing because... I think the New American Standard translates it that way in Luke 1. He has to predate it in order not to abhor it. So the the hymn doesn't say he became incarnate by throwing off his divinity. It assumes the divine son assumes creaturely status, flesh, body, soul, intellect. Uh, feelings. Remember? He grew not only in stature, but in wisdom. He developed. His human nature developed over time. Not merely his body, because Jesus wasn't 33 years old when he was born, right? Mary didn't carry a a full-grown adult male, she carried a little infant fetus, and then you know, as it developed. Not only did his body develop, but his intellect developed. But he abhorred not the virgin's womb. He assumed human nature, that holy thing that was created by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. And then he lived or developed in it. I've said this before. The first Adam seems to have been created mature. Our confession says perfect, and I think it means mature. And the first Eve, see the way I just put that. There's there's another Eve, but the church is the the second Eve. Anyway, um, the first Adam seems to have been created uh, as an adult. You read the account in Genesis 1 and 2, it's pretty clear. Eve seems to be have been created as an adult as well. Um, soon as Adam sees her, however it happened, I think it's with the law of God written on his heart, he saw something external to himself and he interpreted it in light of this innate law that was created on, written on his heart and he concluded, uh, this is my wife, fifth commandment kind of thing, which is related to the fifth commandment and the sixth. But the last Adam, Jesus, comes into the world not as a fully grown, mature person, right? He comes as an infant. And so the question is, if they have the first Adam and he's created mature as an adult, why is the last Adam not created the same as the first Adam? that is, the Son of God incarnate, his human nature? And I think you know that some of you know the answer because unlike the first Adam and the first Eve, all the rest of the Adamites and Eveites come by virtue of natural generation from a parent and are born 
In sin, sin my mother conceived me, Psalm 51. So we polluted um, life in the womb. We already come out lying, Psalmist says that. They come out of the womb lying. Sorry, kids. We did too. So we polluted that. And then when we come out of the womb, what, what, what do we do? It's just like natural for kids to do things against the will of their parents. It's not, it shouldn't shock any of us. So we polluted in the womb. We polluted infancy outside of the womb. We polluted our teenage years. We polluted our young adult years. We polluted all the stages of life from womb to tomb. Therefore, if this last Adam is going gonna, is gonna to assume our nature, he must sanctify all the things that we polluted. And this is like, the, it's like, what? God became one of us to repair us and to bring us back to God? If that's true, that's pretty good news. That's why it's called the gospel, uh, the good news. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Our Lord said, I have come as light into the world. This certainly implies his preexistence as the God who is light, since he came as light, yet he spoke these words according to his human nature, which he took to himself in the virgin's womb, right? I think I said that in the first hour. He's speaking according to his human nature. The faculty of speech is creature, along with the lungs and the ability to bring in air. And by the way, our mind tells our lungs what to do, and it does it. I mean, you can tell you can tell your lungs to stop bringing in air only for a brief period of time, and then I think you faint or whatever. But all these things in us are working in conjunction with each other to cause us to be able to speak audible words like I'm speaking now. Jesus did the same thing. Real flesh is what he assumed. But when he's speaking in John 12, 46, and saying these words... I have come as light into the world. He's speaking not about or his human nature, though he's speaking according to his human nature about his divinity. He, he does this in other places. Before Abraham was born, I am. Full stop. He said that according to his human nature about his Divinity, not about his humanity. His humanity did not predate Abraham's birth, but his divinity did and does. Same thing is happening here. So we see here a great mystery of the Christian faith. God was manifested in the flesh. God the Son came down for us men and for our salvation that we should not abide in darkness, but instead, someday, abide in only 
light, whatever that is. By the way, you ever thought of that? What is light? Is light, this is weird, okay? Is light God? On the one hand, we have to say, well, yeah, because it says God is light. On the other hand, we have to say, well, no, light's a creature. So God uses creaturely things like light to tell us something about himself. Is God a rock? Yes. Is God a creature? No, but God uses creaturely things. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. So when you see a strong tower, you go, that's the Lord, or that's the name of the Lord. No, you're saying the tower is a creaturely thing that signifies something about God. God uses creaturely things to tell us something about God. Light is a creaturely thing. The light that we know is full of variableness, right? Uh, this light is dependent upon electrical circuits, and that electrical circuit, in order to get here, is dependent upon either poles or tubes in the ground that carry it, and you know, all that stuff. The sun is a creature that is light, but there was a time when the sun was not sun. It existed only in the mind of God, but it didn't exist in reality. Stars are lights. The moon is... Is the moon a light in itself? No. It borrows light, okay? So you have these luminaries that illumine, that enlighten in order for creatures to see. So it's a, it's a good metaphor, it's a good figure of speech to use, but it's, it still has limitations, the, the light language. Um, because when we think of light, we, th we immediately think of darkness. God is light. You, you can't think of darkness when you're saying God is light, right? We think of uh, light, we think of day and night. You can't think that way about God. But it's still, a, it's, it's a good one because if you ever seen, ooh, the album cover of the Pink Floyd, what, what was the name of that album? I forgot what it's called. Dark Side of the Moon. It's interesting. If you've ever seen James <laughs> Dalzell's PhD dissertation book called God without parts. It has what looks like a Pink Floyd replica thing there. It's got this white beaming light kind of shaft going this way, and then it has a prism, and then on the other side of it, it's got all these colors. And what it's trying to depict on James's book cover is this is how God reveals himself. God just is what he is. Here's the figure, light. But when he manifests, he looks like different colors. We call those attributes. How is God going to reveal God to creatures except bit by bit? Does that mean God is bit by bit made up? No. It means creatures learn discursively, slowly, carefully, by examination and by drawing conclusions. And creatures can learn about God through creatures like light, but creaturely light isn't God. But it's a very helpful metaphor. A metaphor is a word used to signify something other than what the word says. So when we say, like, 
God is light. We're not saying God is a creature. God is love. Um, you know how you love me, honey? You love me, right? And I love you. It's the same thing. God's that. Okay, so it doesn't say God is loving. Is God loving? Does God so act in a way to try to benefit the object that he loves? Yes. Okay, but that's not what 1 John 4, 8 means. It means whatever love is, that's what God is. Whatever love signifies there, the word love signifies, whatever the word light signifies, that's what God is. It's not what God has. See the difference? Isness and hasness. Is that a word? It is now. I always know when, when, when the brother in the front, I won't say your name, whenever he smiles, I know I'm right, even though he thinks I'm wrong. Thinks I'm, it's a neologism. You know what that is? Neo-new logos word. A new word. I just made it up. It's not a made-up word. Isness and hasness. Are, are, do we have our existence? Yes. From whence? Or from who? Whom? God, right? We live, we move, and we have our existence in him. Acts 17, whatever it is. Does God have his existence? No, because then we'd say, from whom did he get it? God just is his own existence. You're saying, this is weird, he's off the notes. Yeah, it is, and I am. But all this to just to highlight, when it says, I have come as light into the world, that whoever believes on me, by the way, if you believe on him, you believe that he is the son of the father eternally begotten, begotten, not made, Nicene Creed, where'd they get that from? That is, his divine nature is begotten somehow, somewhat, excuse me, some way in relation to the Father eternally as God the Son. All that took place, this thing men call Christmas, the incarnation, to deliver us from darkness. You say, well, how do we know if God loves us? It's John 3.16. This thing right here, he gave his only, what's the old, older, better translation say? Begotten son. God so loved, God loved the world in this manner. Check it out. The incarnation, sufferings, and glory of the Messiah for us and for our salvation. So I think John 12, 46 deserves a book written about it, and maybe someday somebody worth writing it can do that for us. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for John 12, 46 and other texts that just shine out this, uh, the essence of what Christianity is all about. It's all about Christ. It's all about the Son of God assuming human flesh, 
to live in it, suffer in it, obey in it, die in it, rise in it, ascend in it, rule in it, and then ultimately judge by, in it and bring, uh, bring us, his people, to glory. We ask that you would help us now as we consider the Lord in his death, remembering him by obeying his words and taking the supper together. We ask your gracious work in this. In Jesus' name, amen.